Part 1, Chapter 10 of The Uttermost Star. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by D. Randall. The Uttermost Star and Other Gleams of Fancy by Frank W. Borum. The Secret. A secret is a maddening affair. It goads and stings without discrimination and without pity. It tortures like a grand inquisitor, both the man who possesses and the man who covets it. The one is bursting to tell his secret. The other is burning to know it. The one is like a bottle filled with highly effervescent fluid tightly corked. The other is like a bottle empty and ashamed. But look at this. They were off to school side by side jessie and joan do tell me pleaded jessie but i promise i would tell nobody explained joan and so all through the long school morning two little lassies usually bright as sunshine bent over their tasks with faces clouded and glum the secret was a killjoy it has spoiled all the fun for both of them the worst of it is that secrets are such noisy things if a man carries a sovereign in his pocket, he keeps it dark. Nobody knows it. He does not proclaim it from the housetops for the information of every thief's kitchen. But with the secret, it is otherwise. A secret is more coveted than a sovereign. Yet by an odd perversity, the man who carries a secret lets all the world know that he carries it. You can see it in his eyes. You can detect it in his behavior. You may even hear it from his lips. He does not, of course, tell you the secret itself. But he exasperates you by confiding to you the fact that he holds a secret. That is why it is so much more easy to pick a man's brains of secrets than to pick his pockets of sovereigns. Take cabinet ministers, for example. I have been reading the since great life of Delane. When Delane edited the Times, there were no such things as cabinet secrets. Delane wouldn't allow them. The Tsar of Russia read the British ultimatum in the Times before he received the document from the British ambassador. No decision of any importance was reached by Her Majesty's advisers, but the Times published it before the responsible minister had had time to announce it. Every new appointment appeared first in the paper and was afterwards communicated to Parliament. Premiers stormed, ministers thundered, members made angry speeches, officials complained bitterly, but still the conditions knew no change. Lord Derby in the upper house almost demanded the head of the offender. Where was the leakage? Who supplied the information? A cast, remarked Lord Malmesbury, may leak just as easily at the top as at the bottom, and conscience-stricken ministers looked at each other in amazement or guiltily hung their heads. The journalists knew all the moves in the gang. The clubs had a story of one noble lord, whose face always assumed a look of extraordinary importance when a cabinet secret was tucked away among the cerebral convolutions of his brain. A certain reporter, who made it his business to scrutinize his lordship's countenance closely, knew that look well. He pounced upon his prey like a fox on a goose. Well, my lord, he would say quite casually, so you have settled such and such a matter at last. 
his lordship would look astonished and concluded that the official announcement must have been made or else that some other member of the cabinet had been less discreet than himself yes he would reply and since you know so much there can be no harm in telling you the rest and so it came about that at daylight the paper appeared with the whole story now and then it may happen that a cabinet minister is relieved of a sovereign that he was carrying in his pocket but that is only now and again because sovereigns are so silent cabinet ministers do not advertise the fact that they carry sovereigns in their pockets but every day cabinet ministers are relieved of the secrets that they carry in their minds for unlike sovereigns secrets are so noisy the man who carries a secret proclaims to all the world that he carries that secret and as a natural result the secret is very soon a secret no longer a secret as i have said is a maddening affair it teases and tantalizes and taunts me be i young or old male or female i am aflame with curiosity and busy with inquisitive investigations until i know all about it and then in all probability i laugh at myself for having bothered my head about such a stupid or trivial matter but meanwhile the time has come to pull ourselves up and ask ourselves a particularly plain and pertinent question is a secret a good thing or a bad thing is it a good thing or a bad thing that as soon as jessie discovers that joan has a secret poor little jessie can think of nothing else until she has solved the captivating mystery is it a good thing or a bad thing that as soon as fleet street gets wind of a secret in downing street an army of journalists king as hounds on the scent give cabinet ministers no rest night or day until they have run their quarry to earth is it a good thing or a bad thing that as soon as i find that my neighbor holds a secret i am wretched and ill at ease until i too am in possession of it it is a good thing unquestionably a good thing i am prepared to argue that the secrets of the world have been the salvation of the world what is the eternal quest for knowledge but the response of our tantalized minds to the taunting secrets of the universe twinkle twinkle little star how i wonder what you are up above the world so high like a diamond in the sky there was the question a question asked in that form or in some other by the first inhabitants of this planet and the longer that question remained unanswered the more restless men became the stars the secrets of the stars what were the secrets of the stars and out of that insatiable hunger for a secret astrology and astronomy were born had a secret possessed no power to inflame the curiosity of men we should never have had a copernicus a galileo a kepler a newton a herschel because the silence of the skies was more than man could bear he set to work to wrest their story from them the tower of babel was the germ from which the greenwich observatory evolved and so man came at length to know the sun and moon jupiter and saturn as well as london knows melbourne or melbourne hong kong the same is true of the strata beneath our feet the silence of the past was a terrible thing what had happened on this planet before we arrived here before our history books began here was a secret for you and that secret teased the imagination of man 
until he set to work to dig up the records. With what frenzy of eager enthusiasm he searched for that secret. No prospector hunting after gold at Klondike or Kalgoorlie ever tore up the earth with fiercer zest. His pickaxe shook the planet. Beneath the seas he made a stair. He laid the primal forges bare. He asked if truth were hid near Karen or Pyramid. He questioned rune and can, and bones as old as man. And thus, in that passionate quest of a secret, the science of geology was born. And what means all this romantic tale of exploration? These bronze travelers back from the interior of great continents, these battered ships back from the poles. It is the same old story. There were secrets. How the secret as to the fountains of the now taunted the brain of Livingstone. In the delirium of death he was still babbling of the fountains, the unseen fountains. How the secret of the West tantalized the fancy of Columbus. How the secrets of the snows have lured to their triumphs a great host of Arctic and an Arctic adventurers. If science is a good thing, it follows that a secret is a good thing. For if the world had been challenged by no secrets, it would certainly have been enriched by no science. No man's equipment is complete unless he is furnished with a fair stock of secrets. The man who can air all his knowledge to everybody knows nothing worth imparting to anybody. A man's wealth must be measured not by what he pays away, but what he still possesses after all his obligations are discharged. A water supply must be measured not by the flow at the tap, but by the depth and fullness of the reservoir. And similarly, a man's knowledge must be gauged not by his conversation, but by his reserves. A wise man knows more than he ever tells. He may share much of his knowledge with the multitude. He may divide some of his best things among his intimates and companions. He may keep a few of his priceless treasures for the wife of his bosom. But even then, he will reserve a few choice morsels for himself and for himself alone. Like a gardener who feels that he must himself taste some of the choicest fruit he grows, like a miser who runs his fingers through his hoard in secret, the wise man has a few things that are strictly and solely for his own delectation. There is something very impressive about a dignified reticence. The Scotsman of the true type never carries his heart on his sleeve. The English gentleman of the old school is very conservative in the selection of his friends. It is a bad sign when a man becomes prodigal of his secrets, when he feels that he must take everybody into his confidence and tell everybody everything. He should instantly send for a doctor. He is getting morbid. A man is never so poor as when his stock of secrets has run low. For the matter of that, it is a bad sign when a nation becomes garrulous and talks about everything. There are some subjects that are too sacred to be exposed to the glare of the footlights. They do not fit the flicker of a film. They are too majestic to be bandied to and fro in the course of a newspaper controversy. Humanity has a few secrets, and when humanity is quite healthy and sane, it does not drag those secrets on to the stage or discuss them in the press. There is something wrong somewhere when a people is prepared to talk about everything. Religion in itself is essentially a matter of secrets. 
Emerson, writing of his visit to England, said that no man could understand England or English history unless he were in the secret. And the secret of England, he maintained, was England's faith. That divine secret, he goes on to say, has existed in England from the days of Alfred the Great to those of Florence Nightingale. A divine secret, mark you, that is the mistake that they make who seek to penetrate the superb silences of revelation. Of the life beyond the grave, for instance, the scriptures speak with sublime and awful reticence. As against this, we have the grotesque history of seances and table wrappings. These records, says Mr. Augustine Burrell, until recently one of His Majesty's advisers, these records leave me unconvinced. They lack grandeur. They deal with petty things. A revelation of a life beyond the grave ought surely to be more stupendous than that, something of really first-class importance. Otherwise, we are just as well without it. Precisely. Even God is entitled to his secrets. There are things about which inspiration can afford to be silent. The fact before which Pompey stood bewildered when he burst into the Holy of Holies was the awful stillness of the place. No priest spake, no choir chanted. The temple was invaded, but it held its secrets still. A stately reticence is infinitely nobler than an ignominious speech. The soul itself is essentially a secret thing. It does not advertise itself as the body does. It loathes the limelight. It dreads publicity. It shrinks from the glare. The deepest things can never be told. He told me all things that ever I did, said the woman of Samaria to her fellow townsmen. That is a masterpiece of revelation and reticence. She did not say what those things were. She did not glory in her own shame. She revealed all that it was needful to reveal. She concealed all that it was womanly to conceal. The man who can reveal to his fellows the whole of his religious experience has no experience worth revealing. Faith, to quote Newman's fine phrase, has large reserves. The Old Testament likens the growth of the soul to the growth of a tree. Oliver Wendell Holmes used to say that a tree is a most wonderful creature standing on its head. The principal part is underground. Those marvelous fibers that sent their food and water from afar, and that accomplished the most astounding engineering feats in order to reach it, are all stowed away in the darkness. What the tree displays is as nothing to what the tree hides. The New Testament likens the relationship existing between the soul and its Savior to the relationship existing between a bride and her bridegroom. A proud young wife may draw aside the veil in order to permit her bosom friends to peep for a moment at her felicity, but what she reveals is as nothing to what she conceals. Like the tree, the soul draws her sustenance from darkest depths and hidden springs. She lives on her secrets. Like the bride, the soul derives her satisfaction from a holy and beautiful relationship, the mystic character of which no tongue can ever tell. End of Part 1, Chapter 10